You're listening to the free abridged edition of the Energy Transition Show. Natural gas, energy infrastructure, solar power, wind turbines. Can nuclear be a part of meeting our climate challenge? I think you're probably going to say no. Absolutely not. The truth of the matter is there's no silver bullet. There's no, like, one answer here. For October 27th, 2021, this is the Energy Transition Show with Chris Nelder. Since roughly the beginning of July, much of the world has watched with growing alarm as a global energy crunch has unfolded. It began with rising natural gas prices in the UK, which then gradually expanded to rising demand and prices for LNG in Asia and Europe, then to rising prices in the US and the rest of the world. In Asia, the spot price of a cargo of LNG soared from less than $5 per million BTU in September 2020 to more than $56 this October, an 11-fold increase. Having remained below $3.50 cents per million BTU for nearly all of the past six and a half years, the Henry Hub natural gas benchmark in the United States nearly doubled to more than $6 in October. The soaring gas prices led some countries, like China and India, to fall back on their coal plants for power generation, which in turn pushed up coal prices to the point of unaffordability, forcing some power plants into outages. Large parts of northeast China are now facing power cuts for several hours a day. A whole series of knock-on effects proceeded to unfold. Many Chinese businesses and manufacturers have been forced to curtail operations and make other sacrifices. Guangdong, the most populous province, banned the use of elevators and office buildings below the third floor, encouraged residents to use natural light as much as possible, and asked for air conditioners to be adjusted to no less than 26 degrees Celsius or 79 degrees Fahrenheit at homes and businesses. Electricity is being rationed for cranes at the port of Tianjin. Dozens of plants processing soybeans, feed, and vegetable oil have been suspended. The steel, cement, aluminum, and chemical sectors have been forced to stagger their production to avoid peak hours and are facing production caps. Several large firms in the Zhejiang textile hub were temporarily closed, and others are being triaged based on their relative energy use. Various businesses in Europe have also been forced to curtail operations, with multiple industries in the UK curtailing production, putting some companies at risk of financial ruin. In turn, the slowdown in power and manufacturing has exacerbated a crunch up and down global supply chains for nearly everything. Rising consumer demand has met with ports groaning with shipping containers waiting to be moved and unloaded, and container ships anchoring for weeks waiting to get into port, which has caused shipping prices to soar between 300 and 600 percent. And those supply chain bottlenecks are causing major delays and price increases for everything from gasoline to hard goods, even for solar panels, as solar manufacturers experience their own rising costs for energy and raw materials. Consumers are reporting having to wait months to have their orders filled for items that used to be readily available. Much of the world was slow to recognize this growing contagion in energy markets and its subsequent effects until it finally reached their domestic businesses. And when things will turn around is anyone's guess. With so many factors at play, including a truly global energy crunch essentially all forms of energy, it could go on for months or even years. So I was very pleased that Will Kennedy, Executive Editor for Energy and Commodities at Bloomberg News, agreed to join us on the show and discuss this immensely complex picture. Will oversees their coverage of global markets in oil, gas, power, metals, and agriculture, so he has the necessary scope of knowledge, and he's been at Bloomberg for 17 years and covered many of these sectors as a reporter, including 
including oil and shipping, so he has the necessary depth. I will admit that I've been champing at the bit to launch this show ever since we recorded this conversation at the end of September, but due to my new lifestyle on the road, I have to get interviews done even longer in advance as my location and schedule allow. However, the topics we covered in this conversation have only become more urgent and relevant since then. I can only wonder how the situation will continue to evolve as winter sets in, which many analysts are nervously watching. I know you will all find this conversation absolutely head-spinning in its scope and complexity. And before we go to the interview, I'm excited to announce our latest group licensees. So allow me to extend a warm welcome to the Colorado School of Mines Advanced Energy Systems Graduate Program, the University of Colorado at Boulder, Colorado State University, Cornell University, and a special shout out to the anonymous donor who made Cornell's subscription possible, Power Systems Consultants, STEM Inc., the Sonoma Clean Power Authority, the Nova Scotia Department of Natural Resources, and Toronto Hydro. We're so pleased to have you join Join our supporters, and we hope you will make good use of our extensive show archive and show notes. And if you're an annual subscriber who's been looking to hire good talent or who is looking for a new job in energy transition, remember to check out our new job board. There are new listings being added all the time. And now, our conversation with Will Kennedy, recorded September 29th, 2021. So let's bring him into the conversation now. Welcome, Will, to the Energy Transition Show. Hi, Chris. How are you? Good. So, you know, when I first started working on this show concept, the main theme was about natural gas prices in the UK. But that issue has quickly expanded into what is now looking like a global energy crunch involving all fuels and really much of the world. And it just struck me as we were about to start recording here, this is really a pretty remarkable moment. I mean, I don't think I've seen the like since the commodity explosion of 2008. Would you agree? Yes, it's a global phenomenon. It's starting to spread through all of the energy complex from gas to coal to oil and electricity and one way of framing it might be to say it's the first energy crisis of the energy transition age and i think it <laughs> i think it raises real issues and conversations to have about what the power and energy system looks like as the global economy goes through this enormous shift which is going to happen at at one pace or another over the next 20 30 years Wow, that is a sobering thought. <laughs> well, let's go ahead and just start with a framing like that, why don't we? Okay. Well, all right, let's start at the beginning because it really did, I think, begin with the UK's gas situation. You know, over the past year, gas prices in the UK just absolutely soared. Spot market gas prices rose by 400% over the past year, and wholesale gas prices to utilities have increased by 250% since January, with 70% of the rise just since August. In fact, since the price of gas in Europe exceeded the all-time high for the Brent benchmark for crude oil, which was $147.50 in 2008. So I'd like to start today's discussion by just exploring some of the reasons for these surging prices, because this really looks a bit to me like a kind of a perfect storm with multiple factors at play, starting with a cold winter, really, which left stocks of gas lower than usual in the UK followed by high summer demand, which prevented storage from being refilled, as it usually is in the summer. So can you fill in that picture a bit for those who don't live in Europe and might not be aware of the weather there? Yes, of course. There are several trends that have 
fed into this gas market, this extremely tight gas market that we've got across Europe, but particularly in the UK, as you say. I mean, the weather is key. And you mentioned the weather. Last year, we had a cold winter and it left gas stockpiles depleted. I mean, I should start by saying that in contrast to some other parts of the world, the vast majority of households across Europe rely on piped gas, network gas to heat their homes. So it's an extremely seasonal demand picture and you get far, far more demand for gas during winter months and that demand is very tied to how cold it is. You know, the colder it gets, the more people need to burn gas to heat their homes. So we had a cold winter last year, a lot of demand, We ended what we call the heating season in Europe, which runs from October the 1st, Friday, until the end of March. And we ended that with very low supplies, and it's been hard to replenish them. And why has it been so hard to replenish the gas supplies? Well, one, because you're starting from a lower base, and two, because I think there's a lot of competition, which I think we'll get onto later in our conversation, Chris, a lot of competition globally for gas supplies. But that brings me to my other part of the equation. There's the winter demand equation that set this up, but there's also the supply equation. Europe traditionally produced quite a lot of its own gas. That principally came from the North Sea. And also in the UK, you've got Morecambe Bay on the other coast, on the west coast between England and Ireland, had some notable gas fields. And if we look beyond the UK into Europe, we had the Groningen gas field, which was Europe's biggest in Holland and produced a huge chunk of European gas. Now, the UK's oil and gas sector has been in decline for a number of years. And despite some recent discoveries, it continues to be in long-term decline. This year, there's a lot of maintenance going on in the North Sea and production of natural gas is expected to be 45% lower than the previous year. And Groningen is being run down very fast because the Dutch have decided it needs to shut early to meet their climate commitments. And that gas field will close by 2023. So in Western Europe, we're not producing as much gas as we were. And that makes us more reliant on Russia. And it makes us more reliant on importing liquefied natural gas that's been super chilled, put on a tanker for regasification when it reaches its final destination. So we've got the demand equation from a cold winter, we've got the supply equation that I just described, and that meant that we started the run into this year's heating system with quite a tight demand supply balance. Right. And without the usual amount of supply to refill it with. Okay. So another major factor has been demand in Asia for liquefied natural gas. As you just said, there's increased competition. It seems that Europe is competing more directly than ever with Asia for gas imports. But there have also been problems on the supply side there too, with reduced supplies from top suppliers, Norway and Russia, as well as some interruptions from U.S. gas production facilities due to Hurricane Nicholas and Hurricane Ida. So it seems the market has just been sort of tightening on both ends, hasn't it? Whenever you get a commodity market where demand tends to be very inelastic, it doesn't take much of a supply disruption to really upset things. And we've had a few of those sort of not huge supply disruptions, but niggling supply disruptions. As you said, Hurricane Ida delayed a few cargoes from the US Gulf Coast of liquefied natural gas. There was a fire at a processing plant in Russia, which meant that they weren't able to process quite as much gas on one of their pipelines as normal. And yes, heavy maintenance in Norway, as you say, and those supply disruptions tightened an already tightened market. They just sort of turned the ratchet up a little bit and fed into that picture. But it comes against a broader 
background of strong demand globally around the world, and I think this is a theme we'll come back to in our conversation, Chris, is that one of the big picture things that's going on here is if we come out of the lockdowns as the global economy recovers, we're seeing extraordinary demand for energy, and it's recovered extremely fast. And that's partly because a lot of the demand is coming from the industrial sector. We moved from a services economy back in some ways to a goods economy. We're not going to restaurants as much. We're not going to the theater as much. We were buying things. We were buying new TVs to watch Netflix. We were buying headphones to do podcasts. (laughs) (laughs) You know, all these kind of things. And that has really added a lot to energy demand. Petrochemicals, for example, which requires huge amounts of gas and oil, is booming. So that's the broader picture that I think people need to see is that the economy is rebounding quickly and it's rebounding in a very energy intensive way. Yeah. It's funny you should mention the headphones because my producer, when I asked him if he could get a headset out to you for this taping, said, oh, I think we got the last one that was in stock. He said, it's looking tight out there. Like we might have trouble getting headsets in the future because we normally just send headsets to our guests, which was kind of shocking to me. Yeah, I mean, supply chains are really stretched globally. And we've seen that in the shipping industry where rates to ship things around the world have ballooned. But it's also part of the energy picture. And the energy picture is stretching supply chains as people who are making stuff for the world struggle to get as much energy as possible. And that's really coming to the fore in China this week. Again, something that we'll probably return to later in the conversation. Yeah, yeah. You know, what's worse, a trade group of manufacturers in the U.S. has been lobbying the U.S. Department of Energy to order U.S. LNG producers to reduce exports because they're worried now about price increases and supply shortages this winter in the U.S. Gas prices haven't risen quite as much here in the U.S. as they have in Europe, but they've still more than doubled to around $5.22 per million BTU the last time I checked, up from about $2.54 per million BTU in January. So almost a doubling there. At the same time, exports are up 41% from a year ago and storage is down. U.S. stockpiles are 7% below the five-year average for this time of year. And U.S. shale gas production has been basically flat for two straight years now as drillers were forced to finally exercise a little capital discipline after junk debt issuance dried up. (laughs) So this very, very complex situation here with the shale gas complex in the U.S. is also feeding in here. And it really doesn't bode well for the U.S. shale gas suppliers riding to the rescue here, does it? No, I think the U.S. has been a key component of global gas market in recent years, as you say, in just over a decade now since the shale gas revolution really started to happen, they have built out an LNG industry from scratch, which is exporting millions of cubic meters of gas every year from terminals dotted along the US Gulf of Mexico coast. But there's a limit to what they can do. And I think you describe the situation very well, Chris, when you say that the US is the best probably supplied part of the world for gas. It's actually a key competitive advantage for the US economy that gas is so much cheaper in the US than some other parts of the world. But that rise you've seen that you describe, and I think right now as we speak, it's trading at 5.58. And it has been as high as six at one point this week, will really be felt. And it does speak to the fact that there isn't that much extra gas to spare in the US. Gas storage in 
the US is lower than normal. It's 21% below its 10-year average for the time of year, according to one research firm for Texas. And US gas output is only expected to rise 1.1% during the second year. Mm. And the US economy is recovering fast. And as I said a moment ago, is thirsty for energy. So there isn't that flexibility to come from the US. And what you're going to have is domestic buyers are going to compete with exporters for that gas. And we may see the price go higher. You started with talking about the trade group who's lobbying for curves. I do think at this stage that's probably unlikely that the federal government probably wouldn't want to get involved in a market like this and will let things play out. But if things got really hairy, who knows? Yeah, no, I agree. I don't put a lot of stock in that, but I just thought it was just another sort of interesting indicator, right, of sort of where we're at. Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, that fear of running short on gas supplies, that fear has crossed the Atlantic. You know, some have accused Russia of, quote unquote, weaponizing its gas production and deliberately holding back supplies in order to pressure the UK into supporting its new $11 billion Nord Stream 2 gas pipeline. The Nord Stream 2 project will carry Russian gas directly to Germany, bypassing land routes through Ukraine, and depriving it of as much as $2 billion a year in transit fees. So Ukraine and Poland have opposed giving regulatory clearance to the pipeline, which Russia says is now complete. And the U.S. and the U.K. have sided with their allies in Kiev, imposing sanctions and exerting pressure on the Kremlin to stall the pipeline however they can. But Germany, being at the receiving end of the pipeline, has steadfastly supported it. It has alleged that Ukraine has spare transit capacity, roughly twice that of Nord Stream 2, but Gazprom, the state gas company of Russia, is just choosing not to use it. And as the FT's David Shepard asked rhetorically on Twitter, quote, if you're saying you can only have additional gas to relieve record prices once you approve our politically contentious pipeline isn't weaponizing gas supplies, then what is it? <laughs> yes, I mean, Nord Stream 2 has been one of the most interesting questions in European energy policy over the last few years for lots of different reasons, and it has huge geopolitical economic importance. The Russians do want to get it finished. And I think under the Biden administration, that's likely to happen. I think there's a recognition in Washington that they won't be able to stop it happening. And they need to be there for a key ally in Germany as well, for whom it's a strategic priority. Although it will be interesting to see how the German election shakes out, what the coalition is, and mm. how strong the Greens are in that coalition, who have been historically a little bit more hostile to Nord Stream 2. But I do think in the context of the current crunch, to some extent, it's a red herring. Now, opportunistically, the Russians are using it as a way of putting pressure on. It suits their purposes to say, if you're going to complain to us about having more gas, about gas security, about us being a reliable supplier, then you should allow us to get the infrastructure built and open. But that said, I think the real problem here is that Gazprom the Russian gas exporter, the state-controlled company that has a monopoly on exporting gas from Russia, doesn't at this stage of the year have any extra gas to supply Europe. Right now, it's important to recognise that they're meeting all their long-term supply obligations. Most of the gas that it supplies to Europe is done under long-term contracts with utilities in Germany and beyond, with big industrial users, and it's able to make that, but it doesn't necessarily have any extra gas a key thing here, we started the conversation, Chris, about talking about how depleted and low gas reserves were in Europe 
after last year's cold winter. That's also true in Russia. Mm. And Russia relies on natural gas for its own heating needs, for its own industrial needs. And at the end of last winter, they were just 16% full. And in normal year, they might end the winter sort of at more in the 35 to 40% range. So they've got a lot of catching up to do. And the gas that they're producing, any gas they have spare over their existing obligations, is simply going to go into getting themselves ready for winter. Because after all, why would they be filling European stockpiles before their own? Later in the winter, the picture might change. They probably will have extra gas. They will happily sell it to Europe for all the conspiracy theories about Putin wanting to use cash as a lever to get his way in Europe. He's also very reliant on the money that comes from selling gas to Europe, and he wants to be seen as a reliable and willing supplier of gas. So there may be more gas later in the winter. I think personally, and some people disagree about this, some people think that there is a really political element here and that Putin's Russia has been holding back gas to put pressure to get Nord Stream 2 done and other reasons. But our view is, having looked at this and reported on this a little bit, that the conspiracy theory is overdone. And if there isn't more gas, it's because there isn't more gas. Hmm, interesting. Yeah, I'm reminded now that pretty much every Christmas there's some sort of an event where Russia starts withholding gas and puts Europe into a bit of a tizzy. <laughs> yeah, but often those events are aimed at putting pressure on Ukraine as much as Europe. And the important mm. thing to understand about Nord Stream 2 is that, as you said in your question, it takes the Ukraine out of the picture. It bypasses. And it's a direct link between Russia and Germany. And those gas pipelines between Russia and Germany have been absolutely central to the economic and political relationship between those two big European powers ever since the 60s and 70s when those pipelines first got built. <laughs> and we should remember that the original pipeline between the Soviet Union and the West Germany, as it then was, was bitterly opposed by the White House too, and it got built nonetheless. Hmm. Wow. Oh my gosh, fascinating, all those geopolitical elements. You know, another element in this picture was that for a couple of weeks, wind was underperforming relative to previous years in the UK. It contributed only around 4% of the total electricity supply on September 19th, which forced the UK grid to start up a bit of coal-fired generation for the first time in a while, and to rely on more gas, pumped hydro, biomass, and imports to kind of fill in the gap. Now, once the wind picked up again, three days later, it was providing nearly a quarter of the UK's electricity. Coal plants have been shut down again, and things were looking a bit more normal. And without knowing the answer to this question, I'm just going to guess that the allies of the fossil fuel and nuclear industries used that moment to lay the whole problem at the feet of wind and solar and to argue against the energy transition, did they? To some extent, although I think what's striking to me is those voices perhaps were not as strong as they were in the Texas energy crisis that we saw earlier this winter, Chris. Mm. When that happened, it became very politically ill very quickly and there were there are accusations flying in each direction. It's the fault of the renewables industry. It's the fault of the gas industry. Right. So far, we haven't seen too much of that. You see the usual suspects on Twitter saying renewables don't work. What happens when the wind doesn't blow? What happens when the sun doesn't shine? Ha, ha, ha. Mm -hmm. But it hasn't been too marked. I mean, I think what the crisis really highlights is how important the interplay is between the natural gas market and renewables, especially in the UK, which has probably moved faster than any other European country to add renewables, wind power in particular. And on a good day, a windy day, we're getting a quarter of our power from wind in the UK. And that's expected to increase markedly over the next decade as we install giant wind farms in the North Sea. But I think the issue is 
if gas is a solution to the intermittency of UK's wind power, and for the time being it is until we develop batteries at a much bigger scale or we understand how to use hydrogen as a storage solution for green power, until that happens, and both of those things aren't probably likely to the 2030s on any serious scale, we're stuck with gas to fill in the gaps on those rare occasions. And I'm sure you've been to the UK and you know it is generally wet and windy place, but there are times occasionally when it's not. (laughs) When that happens, gas has to step in. And the conversation has to be about how do you make the gas market work in a way that it's there when you need it, but acknowledging there are other times when you won't need nearly as much of it. And I think that's where we're struggling right now. Yeah, yeah. Well, it is a wet and windy place, but as Tennyson said, it's also a green and pleasant land as a result. (laughs) Most of the time. Most of the time. (laughs) There are days in the autumn when it is raining and grey and dark, and it's getting darker quickly here where it's not that green and pleasant. But yes, no, it (laughs) it is. But you know, look, it's been a remarkable time in the market, and you've seen prices do extraordinary things in the power market here, because when that wind drought was really strong, and they were really desperate for gas generation... We saw power prices reach 300 pounds a megawatt hour. You know, that's more than $500 a megawatt hour and five times what it normally is that has averaged over the last year. So the point is this dependence on natural gas, the increasing issue of wind power intermittency has created real market distortions in the last few weeks, which I think of, I wouldn't say it's given sucker to the climate critics or climate skeptics, as you suggested, but it's taken a lot of people who think about energy in the UK from both sides of the debate a little bit by surprise, I think. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, yeah. And there's still so many more facets of this to talk about. I mean, another one is that five of the UK's nuclear units went offline uh, around the same time as we had this lull in the wind, which removed three gigawatts from the supply mix. Another unit had an unplanned halt, and two more had reduced output. So where nuclear had been providing 25 to 30% of the total electricity in late August, that share fell to more like 15% in mid-September. What were the issues with those plants? They're old. I think it's a simple thing. Most of our nuclear plants were built in the 1970s, and they're coming towards the end of their lives. They're becoming harder to maintain. They're becoming more expensive to maintain. They need to be offline for longer and they're having more issues and so they're down more often Mm. five of the existing eight plants are scheduled to close by 2024 and there's no doubt that that is going to be a big issue for the uk energy market a lot of that gap in the short term is going to be filled by new wind farms and that just makes the issue that i was talking about a moment ago of how to make gas and wind work together Right. All the more acute. There is a plan to build new nuclear power stations. There's the Hinkley Sea project in southwest England in Somerset, where EDF, the big French utility, which operates more nuclear power plants than any other European utility outside Russia, perhaps, but probably in the world, I think, actually, is building two reactors, which will provide 3,000 gigawatts of power. So it's a serious project, but that's not scheduled to start till 2026. And we both know how slippery schedules for nuclear power projects can be. EDF is keen to build a similar sized plant in Suffolk on the east coast of England, but that's not even sanctioned yet. I think the government will do it, and I think it will happen. But again... Is that the Sizewell C plant? Exactly. 
that won't start generating power until the next decade, almost certainly. And after that, nuclear policy in the UK has become very unclear. We had a whole line of other projects lined up a few years ago, and there were Korean and Japanese utilities that are interested, German utilities are interested and had explored projects, and they all pulled back when power prices were very low. There's been some talk about perhaps resurrecting one of those projects, the Wilfer project in Anglesey in northwest Wales, but it's unclear if that will happen. And beyond that, the government is talking about using small modular nuclear reactors, which, as you know, Chris, is a very unproven technology. Right. And again, it's not a short-term solution. So the UK is probably more committed to power than a lot of European countries. A lot of industrialized countries are. It wants new nuclear reactors and sees it as part of the solution. It's not Germany where there's going to be no nuclear power, but there's definitely going to be a gap between turning off these 1970-era plants and finishing Hinkley Point and getting Sideswell built. And that's something that the market's going to have to cope with. And I would be remiss if I did not point out that Hinkley is going to come online with a guaranteed price of whatever it was some years ago, 125 pounds per megawatt hour? 92.50. So not that expensive. But that's a really interesting point, actually, Chris, because for a long time, a lot of people have been saying, gosh, that's a waste of money. Look what we can generate wind power in the North Sea for, you know, that's well below that falling to sort of the 50 pound and below mark for a lot of projects. And we're paying £92. We might as well be filling trucks with cash and sending them to Paris. This project makes no sense. Mm. (laughs) Looks a bit better when (laughs) day-ahead prices reach 400 megawatts an hour. And I think it does perhaps tell you that the project is, yes, it's expensive. Yes, that power price looks pretty expensive a lot of the time. But when you're getting days where power is reaching 400 pounds megawatt hour, perhaps it isn't so crazy. Yeah, that's a good point. So for a final straw in this situation, a key UK power cable that exports power to the UK from France was knocked out by a fire on September 15th, removing another two gigawatts of supply. Part of that cable was restored, but one gigawatt of its capacity is now expected to remain offline until March. So this really was kind of a perfect storm, wasn't it? If you think about all the factors we've just discussed. Yeah, it it happened while I was on the tube coming to work and I got into the office and, you know, I saw that everyone was in a bit of a tiz and I sat down and saw the headlines that had moved and I thought to myself this can't possibly be true with everything else going on to the market <laughs> we're having a fire at the, one of the most important pieces of energy infrastructure it was pretty pretty remarkable but what it really highlights is the important thing I think about the UK power market is that it is in very dependent a lot of the time on importing power from abroad. I mean, it's a system that works well. There are parts of Europe which have surplus power when we have a deficit, and it makes a lot of sense. And in fact, it's been a key part of the EU's energy policy to encourage these sort of mainline links between different national energy markets to create a more European energy market, which is more flexible and, and can flex to find efficiencies between different parts of the market. And a lot of the time, that's very successful. But it is an important part of our supply. On average, about 7.5% of UK demand has been met this year from France's energy system. And we talked about the UK energy nuclear industry earlier. France, as I said, has by far the biggest nuclear fleet in Europe Mm -hmm. out of 56 reactors. And we're getting 7.5% of our electricity on average from those reactors. So that tells you what an important part 
of the energy system it is for the UK and how we're backing up our own aging nuclear reactors with the surplus from France's reactors. So that's interesting. It's a key vulnerability, though. I think one of the questions that I would like to know, and we've looked into this, I don't think we've had a really got to the bottom of it, though, is that if things get very dicey this winter and we have power shortages all over Europe, well, I mean, the obvious thing for France to do would be to say, well, we'll keep the power at home. Bad luck, mm-hmm. Britain. And mm-hmm. that could happen between different European countries as well. So it's an interesting vulnerability. It's been a strength to the energy system to be able to import from our neighbours. Of course, it's a strength, but it raises perhaps a potential vulnerability. But one other thing to say about these interconnections, we're adding to them and hopefully in the next few days, a new link between Norway and the UK will open. It's 450 miles long crossing the North Sea. That makes it the world's longest subsea power cable. And that will give us another 1400 megawatts of capacity. You know, I think it's interesting in a broader context that that's happening. And it shows you how the European power markets are meshing together. But in the more short term outlook to go back to the fire on the UK France link, it provides a bit of relief to the market. Yeah. Well, you're making me think now, you know, speaking to the point that you raised at the beginning about how this is sort of the first major demonstration of some of the challenges we're going to face as a part of the energy transition. France itself is not planning to proceed with an expansion or a continuance of its nuclear fleet. It's also planning to transition away from nuclear. So that's just one more area in which the UK relies on its neighbor and may wonder (laughs) if that's something they can continue to rely on. Yeah, it's going to be an issue for France. I mean, France will rely on nuclear for some time to come. I mean, it's put France well ahead of other industrialized economies in terms of carbon emissions. And I think it's meant for a much less carbon intensive economy than many of its neighbors. You know, it's an interesting policy. It was obviously largely a response to the energy crisis of the early 70s that they decided to do this. And I think it's had many positive effects for the French economy. But they are getting all those reactors. They have plans to let them run for as long as 60 years. But they will, like the British reactors, require more maintenance, longer downtime times and in the very long term they don't plan to replace all of them and they will presumably become more reliant like the rest of Europe for very good reasons on solar and wind but again that's going to add to the intermittency problems and as you say one consequence of the UK is longer term will it be able to rely on such stable supplies from France? Yeah well you know Again, the importance of storage really jumps out here, and some observers have pointed to the limited gas storage capacity in the UK and what is now really just a just-in-time strategy for gas delivery as a major fault in the situation and called for an expansion of storage. But the Business, Energy, and Industrial Strategy Committee in the House of Commons has said that the UK really only uses its gas storage assets for short-term operational balancing, and that gas supply is actually secured by production from the UK and the Norwegian Continental Shelf, which, as you said earlier in this conversation, is declining. (laughs) Three LNG import facilities, which again depends on exporters like the US and pipelines to Belgium and the Netherlands, so they downplay the need for additional storage. But not everyone is buying that argument. The head of Italy's largest gas distribution company has urged the UK to rethink and reverse its decision to operate its network with minimal storage capacity, warning of cascading shortages and price spikes across the whole European continent. 
And that argument is buttressed by the fact that the UK has moved from being a gas exporter to a gas importer. Again, as you said earlier, gas supplies from the North Sea, from the Groningen field and elsewhere, have been in long-term decline. And the UK has been bringing in more gas from Norway and elsewhere via LNG imports. So how much of a factor do you think storage is in this situation? I mean, is that really a key strategy that the UK needs to pursue here as a way of giving itself a little more buffer? We hope you've enjoyed this free sample of the Energy Transition Show. Our full episodes cover much more and are typically 60 to 90 minutes long. When you become a full annual subscriber, you'll get two new complete episodes each month, access to our entire back catalog, interactive transcripts of our interviews, our extensive show notes with links to all the research resources and news items for each episode, and access to our exclusive job board. Your premium members-only subscription will work in all apps and players that support podcast feeds, including Apple Podcasts and Pocket Casts, so you can easily listen from your mobile device on the go. The first 33 episodes of the Energy Transition Show were free, and always will be. So if you want to see what our full shows contain, feel free to check those out. Then we hope you'll become a member and support our show. In order to bring you the most unfiltered, unbiased, honest information possible, we have elected not to take any sponsors or advertisers. The Energy Transition Show is entirely supported by listener subscriptions. To become a subscriber and enjoy our full offerings, just point your browser to energytransitionshow.com and click the Become a Member button. Annual subscriptions, which include full access to our entire back catalog of full-length episodes, are just $60 a year. Monthly subscriptions are $6.99 a month and give you access to the two most recent episodes. Single episodes can be purchased for $7 each. We also offer discounted annual subscriptions for individual university students and professors, as well as group licenses for companies, nonprofits, and universities. So join us today and support our ad-free podcast featuring high-quality, cutting-edge interviews and news about the most important story of our time, energy transition. And now a quick look at some recent news items. Item 1. On October 4th, UK Prime Minister Boris Johnson announced a new national target to reduce all electricity in the UK from clean sources by 2035, effectively signaling the end of using any fossil fuels for power generation unless carbon capture and storage technology should prove viable before then. The Johnson administration had previously set a goal to end the sale of new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. The Prime Minister said a shift to renewable energy sources by 2035 would protect consumers from fluctuating import prices for oil and gas. Johnson may have been emboldened to make the pledge by major British businesses who called on the government to phase out gas power by 2035, including BT, the largest provider of fixed-line, broadband, and mobile services in the country, Thames Water, the UK's largest water and wastewater services company, and the Cooperative Group, a consumer cooperative with a diverse family of retail businesses. A letter from the companies told ministers, quote, the time is right for the UK to signal an end to the use of unabated fossil fuels in the power sector, end quote, by committing to net zero energy. And there appears to be ample public support for the idea. A YouGov poll commissioned by green think tank Ember found that two-thirds of British adults would support a government target of 100% clean electricity by 2035. Item 2. British energy retailers, including Eon, Ovo Energy, Outfox the Market, and So Energy, have been offering one- or two-year fixed dual electricity and gas deals that are more than £700. Well, that's it for this episode of the Energy Transition Show. Thanks for listening. You can find our show archive and give us feedback and suggestions at energytransitionshow.com and follow us on Twitter at Transition Show. 
Chris Nelder creates the show, Kevin Melsheimer edits it and makes us all sound brilliant, and Justin Ritchie produces our listener experience. Mike Sugar composed and produced our theme music, and you can find him at mikesugarmusic.com. The Energy Transition Show is a production of the XE Network.